You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. William Sullivan, or Sully, as he is known, is a 1995 graduate of the University of Connecticut. He's a retired college basketball coach living in Connecticut with his wife, Jennifer, and their children, Holden and Connor. As the world's greatest collector of friends, he can also be found hoisting the occasional pint in the, in the corner pub with his brothers. I want to go to this corner pub. <laughs> Tilting, with Lips is his... <laughs> Tilting with Lips is his second novel. Uh, welcome to the program, Sully. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So I always like to say that, you know, uncorking the story is always about sort of the stories behind the story. So we are going to kind of talk about your, your most recent book, but I'm curious, where does your story begin? Um, I guess I could probably answer that question in 11 different ways. <laughs> um, since we're talking about the book, I guess the appropriate point for this story that we're going to talk about probably begins with me failing drama 101 as a freshman in college, I feel like it was a bit of entrapment. They put me in towers and sent oh. me to class Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning at 8 a.m. in Vondermaden. All right, this so just, just a little inside baseball here for, for those yeah. in the audience who know nothing about the University of Connecticut, because truth be told, I went there as well. I had an eight o'clock class in Vondermaden and I lived in Colt House for the first few weeks of, of uh, freshman year, and then I, I got out of there. Um, because I wasn't in the marching band and everybody else in my dorm was. Um, that's not an easy, that's not an easy trek to make across campus down to Vondermaden that, that early in the morning. It's, uh, yeah, it's about a mile and it gets pretty cold in stores late October, November. And uh, so that class became optional very fast. And <laughs> I ended up not reading Hamlet for that class right before the midterm I didn't know it was even going to be on the midterm. And years later, uh, I read a book called The Invention of the Human by Harold Bloom that got me very interested in Shakespeare and kind of became somewhat the foundation of the research anyway for the story. I think uh, like a lot of things, you know, I, my, uh, my mom used to say when I played high school sports, that boy's got a lot of quit in him. And so I think coaching, I've always come from a position of regret, like you want kids to put everything they can into it. And I think this book kind of came from the same place where I didn't take my education seriously enough because I was young and a knucklehead. And so there were a lot of things I wanted to learn about later in life and, and Shakespeare happened to be one of them. At what point like in time in your life in general, did, did you think, hey, um, I think there's a book in me? Was it later in life? Was it, was it a dream when you were younger or? Yeah, no, the book was earlier. So the, the first book I wrote, The Summer of Calamari, was um, when I was 20. I, uh, I got into a car accident. I had to take a semester off from school to raise some money to go back. And I spent a summer and then a fall on Block Island off the coast of Rhode Island. And I was 20 years old with no fake ID, which makes Block Island a really boring place. 
And so uh, I wrote a lot. I used to work all day. I played there. I caught a good break. There were some guys that played hoop at Rhode Island that were out there. We played hoop until seven or eight and then everybody went out and I used to go and write. Um, so the first book I put together probably between ages 20 and 22, and then I didn't publish it until 2005. It was something my mom always wanted me to do. She passed away. Um, and I, so I wanted to get it done at that point. Yeah. So tell me about the, just kind of the process of publishing that first book. Did you go the, the traditional route with it? Did you do a self-publishing? Self-published. I, okay. that one, um, she, and again, this is going back to my mom. She had actually found the publishing company um, and kind of challenged me with it. And so that's why I just uh, immediately went through that company without a lot of research just to get it in print so that friends and family could read it. Right. And what was the, what was the response to that book? What did, um, you know, how, you know, how, how well did it do? Um, I would say it was met with underwhelming apathy probably is about the best way to describe it. Even okay. the apathetic were underwhelmed. Okay. Um, so it was, uh, you know, same kind of thing. A lot of friends and family enjoyed it. You know, I didn't really put any marketing in place. Um, there was a time when there was no social media, believe it or not. So that wasn't any kind of vehicle that I could yeah. use at the time. Um, but really it was just like, uh, you know, it was something I wanted to get out there for personal reasons. Right. Right. And I mean, in 2000, you said 2005. Yep. Um, I mean, you, you don't really have like Kindle as a platform, like e-readers e aren't really the, the big platform because really like independent authors and I've published independently, you know, we do really well on, on Kindle as a platform and, and the e-readers as platforms. Um, but you know, it's tough kind of going back to those days, you know, getting into a brick and mortar store is probably unheard of if, you know, you don't have an agent representation, a big publisher right. behind you. Um, so the, really the, the cards are stacked against you, but I'm curious, like, what did you learn about yourself going through that writing process and through that self-publishing process? Um, I guess by the time you get through with it, um, you learn that you have a, a story to tell, you know, and I think, um, you know, most writers would tell you that you have to write from your, you know, your own personal background. It's hard to go too far outside of it. Um, so I think you, you find a lot of pride in being able to carve a fictional story out of the kind of snippets of your own life and the things that were really important to you. Right. So like 30 some years passes between writing that first book, not publishing that first book, but writing that first book and then and tilting with lips coming out, you know, earlier it came out last year, right? In yeah. 2021. Okay. Yeah. Just a few months ago. So, so bridge the gap, you know, what was going on in your life during that point in time and, and, you know, kind of why so long in between, in between books? Um, children. Ah, so my son, uh, my first son was born in 06 and, um, obviously the publishing came right before that the writing had definitely slowed and even, um, even reading went from kind of pouring through fiction to a shift to, to nonfiction, whenever you could kind of squeeze it in to learn a little bit. Um, and then that whole time I was um, coaching division one college basketball, which doesn't leave a whole lot of gaps. We were, we were fortunate. I never would have been able to do that without um, my in-laws who were incredibly helpful. It was like my children have four parents. Mm -hmm. um, so, but the, certainly between the coaching and parenting um, any kind of writing, took a backseat um, 
so I kind of got grooving again when I took a year, I was already researching the book, but the bulk of the writing, I feel like I got done in a year that I took off from, um, from coaching. Right. Right. How did you get involved in coaching? Cause I know you mentioned you were, um, a, a, a an English major at UConn, right? Um, yep. kind of, how did, how did you get into, uh, into coaching? Uh, nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, uh, I got into coaching, I was teaching high school and they asked me to coach, uh, JV soccer. Mm-hmm. And I turned into one of these people that when the bell rang at the end of the day and the kids are trying to like run down the hallway, I'm, you know, plowing them over trying to get to practice. It was so much fun. And, and I love teaching special education. It was a great joy, but not nearly as much as um, I loved coaching. You know, I've always referenced coaching as being in a classroom where you really want to teach, but all the students want to learn. Typical teaching isn't always that way, depending on what level you're doing it at. Um, so I kind of fell in love with coaching there. I started coaching basketball in high school and my wife got a head college job and I had been coaching for a little while and it was her first year and their staff was kind of um, new and on the younger side with the exception of one coach um, who had some background in it. And so we got home and we're just, you know, we were talking a lot about basketball all the time. And so the following year, um, she asked me to come join her staff and that's how I got into it. Yeah. Great. College. Anyway. College. College. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so tell me about this book. So how, how did this, uh, well, tell me just kind of in general, what, what the idea behind tilting with lips is, um, kind of how it came to you and, and how you kind of took it from sort of like a seed in your head, you know, to, uh, to the written word. Sure. I, um, the, again, the getting into Shakespeare was at the roots of a couple of, you know, great books that I got um, put on to early. And so I started reading the plays. And as I got further and further into it, I started reading about Shakespeare's life. And all the, I mean, obviously, when you're going back that far, um, you know, there, there's generally holes in everyone's life. But when you look at some of his contemporaries, um, you know, a Marlowe, a kid, a Middleton, those author, those playwrights, there's at least some historical reference to them as playwrights. Most of what was written about Shakespeare was, um, had more to do with him as an actor, as a theater owner, there wasn't much reference to him as a playwright. So then there's this idea that came out, you know, I think maybe, maybe about 150 years after he died, that someone else wrote the plays. A woman named Delia Bacon, who was a relative of Francis Bacon, starts uh, opining that uh, Bacon wrote the plays. And the more I researched it, the more interesting it became this mystery around it. And so the the roots of the book came from that. And then the other thing I did to play it really safe is um, I put the mystery in the hands of a bunch of novices Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I just coaching basketball full-time, not teaching Shakespeare full-time. I just really don't have the vocabulary or the breadth or depth of knowledge to be able to put together something in nonfiction. So right. uh, I took that angle to kind of cover myself a little bit and, and some of the tracks that may have been, um, you know, a little amateurish for sure. Right. Yeah. Cause some Shakespearean like scholar is going to get like crucify you, you know, yeah. for getting like a fact or detail wrong or something yeah. like that. But um, and it's so funny I mean, you say that. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was lucky to have that happen uh, late in my time at the University of Hartford. 
the chair of the English department, a guy named uh, Robert Logan, who studied at Harvard, wrote books about Shakespeare that I could barely understand. He kind of opened up his office and his mind to me a little bit. And we used to get in there and, and talk about, you know, basically, I would, what should I read next? I'd read it and then we'd chat about it. And when I started talking about the authorship question, he referred to it as intellectual doodling. And I always enjoyed that, but I kind of went after him a little bit about, you know, some stuff in Edward II from Marlowe and some Quincy. And he was great about it. Like he, he, I'm sure in some ways he was laughing at some of my ideas, but he was willing to keep talking about it, um, which was incredible for me to be able to have that experience to talk to some of that erudite, that much background on all the, you know, little kernels of knowledge that I would never glean from the stuff I was reading. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, would you characterize this book as, as a mystery? Is, is it like a comedic mystery or, or how would you characterize it? I would say comedic mystery is fair. Like I, um, I start out in a bar room with four high school friends that are now getting close to 30, um, you know, having generally inane conversations about, you know, the greatest hockey movie of all time you know, the, whether the Corleones could beat the crew from Goodfellas, that kind of thing. And I kind of take <laughs> it over the top um, to paint a picture of uh, how immature men can be when no one's watching. And so from that point, um, you know, I try and bring them along and have them grow up through this mystery that they're handed. Right. Right. So I, I have to ask, what is the greatest hockey movie of all time? I mean, is it Miracle? <laughs> is it uh you know what was the one with uh, with paul newman and for some slap reason shot. Like, slap shot i mean could i mean it's one of the two right i mean it, it's not young blood with rob lowe right I mean, it, it is not young blood i mean it was a phenomenal goal from behind the net but it was not young blood <laughs> i mean swayze was incredible but it was not young blood and it wasn't mystery alaska oh. um but you know, one I mean, guy does get put in timeout for suggesting <laughs> that it could have been uh, Mystery Alaska, not a horrible movie. It's not a horrible. No, movie. I think it's a good movie, but it's, you know, it's I made the mistake. I made the mistake of watching that. So my kids, I have, I have three 19 year olds at home and I can watch that movie now with them, but and actually two of them are at UConn. Now, one of my girls was a hockey player. Um, she played, um, you know, co-ed up until Bantam year. And then, then she went to an all girls team. Um, but we made them, I made the mistake of when she was like 13 turning on, you know, Mystery Alaska, unedited version. Um, I said, oh, kids, it's a good movie. You know, I, I saw it on like TBS or something. Sure. <laughs> and then I'm like, I quickly learned, <laughs> not necessarily a family movie. And you're naturally illustrating my point here. If, if a couple guys get together, it immediately goes from Shakespeare to tangential conversations about hockey movies and nudity during the movie. I mean, yeah. it's, yeah. guys can't not do it. We all have a little Mr. Skin inside of us, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, but I mean, would you agree that the greatest arm wrestling movie of all time is over the top? Of course. <laughs> I used to tell people all the time that the greatest movie about high school wrestling ever made is Vision Quest. Oh, Vision Quest, Loudon Swain. And it was because there were no other movies about high school wrestling. Right. And then the one with Giamatti came out and I'm like, I might have to reframe this argument a little bit, but certainly arm wrestling is still, still over the top. Well, I have to say the greatest movie about high school wrestling featuring a Madonna song then would be vision quest. Yep. <laughs> I always I still, love... I, I can't pass a pegboard without wanting to climb it. 
Now, I can't climb it, but I can't right. pass without wanting to. Wanting to climb. That's the key, yeah. wanting to climb it. Yep. Distinction with um, difference. So, I mean, this kind of being your second, your second book, your second novel, um, what was different about the writing process this time? And, you know, if anything about the publishing process this time, did you learn any other lessons about yourself as you went through this one? Um, I don't know that, I don't know that there were any like kind of key growth life lessons. I think that I was really proud of the research I put into it versus the first one, just kind of complete fiction. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the amount of time that went into it, um, some travel, my wife and I went over to England to kind of, you know, kind of see exactly what I was looking at to be there. Um, so that was a, that was a huge difference. And I think like, you know, looking back, I'm really proud of the first book, but because I was 20 years old, it was like, kind of juvenilia where there were a bunch of sentences where it ended with, and he knew that would go on forever. You know, everything was like eternal. It's how you right. feel in your 20. Like every decision you make is like the most important thing that's ever happened. You know, he chose that Coke instead of that Pepsi and he knew forever this. And you're like, seriously, <laughs> dude, did you really write that down? <laughs> you start to cringe. It? Yeah. It's funny. You look at some of that early and I look at some, I mean, I have like three books that I'd never published um, that are just kind of sitting like early first tries um, at writing something, you know, like third and fourth drafts of these first tries. <laughs> I, I look at them and I'm like, Oh, I, that will never see the light of day unless I die. And somebody like hacks into, you know, a cloud somewhere yeah. and publishes it. <laughs> it's never happening. Yep. Um. Well, cool. I have a few uh, few questions here for you. Um, first of all, before I ask, I, I call these the hot seat questions. I ask them of, of all my guests, um, trying to find some themes across these interviews. But before I do, I, I was struck by your Twitter, ha uh, Twitter handle, um, which is, uh, why don't you tell everybody what your Twitter handle is? Sure. So just qu very quick background. When I got down to George Washington, I finally had to come and go on Twitter so that I could follow all these different people. I was, you know, a big proponent that this was nonsense. And uh, I got the group to agree that our theme for the season would be March all one way. And it's a quote from Shakespeare, but for basketball players, it's like, you know, March is the pinnacle of the season all one way. So my Twitter handle was uh, Bolingbroke four from the Shakespeare play. So at the end of that year, I stopped coaching. So I don't need this Twitter handle anymore. And now I'm gonna be Mr. Mom. And so there's this great scene in Mr. Mom where uh, Michael Keaton is trying to impress his wife's new boss and she's coming to the house and he's got a chainsaw and he's got goggles on. He, I'm going to do this whole big addition and add this and do it. And the boss goes, oh, you're going to wire it all out 220. It's like 220, 221, whatever it takes. <laughs> and so uh, my Twitter handle is 220, 221. And then underneath it says, whatever it takes. And of course, most people see this and they're like, Oh, here we go with this like coaching cliche. They're going to do whatever it takes to. And you were one of the few people that got that has nothing to do with that. Well, there are very few pop culture references that are lost on me. But yeah, um, I also, that, uh, I mean, you had to laugh a little bit right before that. The guy walks in the house and he's like, get you something, beer, seven o'clock in the morning. Scotch? Scotch? <laughs> what was True. the name of the tuna company that she was uh, putting together an ad campaign? ad campaign for. schooner tuner schooner tuner that's yep. right that's right with the uh with the great martin mull 
Yeah. Um, tuna with a heart. Tuna with a heart. Martin Mull, Terry Gar, Mike Keaton. Who else? Any any other big names in that movie? Probably. You yeah. Know, always Those are the big three. The background that comes out three movies later. Right. Right. Um, all right. Well, enough about Mr. Mom, but although that is one of my favorite, all-time favorite movies. Um, so eight, eight hot seat questions for you. First one up uh, is an easy one. What was your favorite TV show when you were a kid? That's the easy one, huh? That's the easy one. The rest are hard. I watched a lot of TV when I was a kid, I guess a little bit older kid. I think Sanford and Son kind of cracked me up. Um, and I liked Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes, man. That's a weird story. You know, if you think yeah. about it, it's a comedy about a guy, a guy's in a German POW camp, you know? And I guess, you know, the joke is that the Germans are the, the joke, right? So I think yeah. that's how they get away with it. But I, you know, I don't know in this, in this kind of world, if, if that premise would, would fly oh, no anymore. Way. Right. Um, and then even him, Bob Crane had a, uh, had, had, he would have been canceled pretty quickly. Yeah. Twisted life, comical, tragical, I very, mean, very, com comical. very comical, very twisted with a young Richard Dawson in that show, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, always groping people, of course, later in life on, uh, <laughs> family feud, family feud. I will say, um, great host of Family Feud, Steve Harvey, pretty damn funny too. Um, I'll watch it every now and then. So, all right, there we go. Hogan Heroes or Sanford and Son. Uh, question number two: How do you feel when you're staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write? Uh, depends what I'm writing. There have been, you know, there have been so many letters of reference over the years that sometimes those just write themselves um but uh i've been hammering out a couple ideas for possibly doing another book and the start of that is completely overwhelming <laughs> you know yeah the tabula rasa is uh is no good i don't think it's what Locke intended do you, uh, do you like, for example, with, with Tilting with Lips, did you start with an outline first and then start writing? Or did you just start writing and see where it took you? Yeah, no, I started with, I was smarter about this one. I started with an outline. Um, I was, as I was going through and pulling together the research, I was just writing it all down in a, in a notebook. Um, you know, sometimes if I didn't have the notebook with me, I'd underline stuff in the books and then go back and transcribe it in. And the outline came in there, the buildup of the characters, the setup of the bar that they start out in and how I was going to put the story together um, all went into that, which definitely made it easier. It was like writing one short story at a time versus writing a novel. Well, you know, the, the bar that they start out at, I'm curious, did you have a specific place in mind that you were drawing from? Absolutely. Um, a buddy of mine uh, owned a bar. He was a part owner in a bar in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And that's where I said it. And uh, his name is Jimmy Kelly. The bartender is Declan Kelly and the bar is called Kelly's. Um, and it was a, obviously an Irish pub. And that was uh, kind of, I pictured that place when I was writing the scenes. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Question number three, what lesson about writing or publishing do you feel like you had to learn the hard way? Um, I think probably that finding a literary agent is the equivalent of finding a leprechaun riding a unicorn 
um, at a Red Sox victory parade in the 1960s. Like, <laughs> it was, I mean, they wouldn't, I didn't get responses. Yeah. I got one response out of all the ones I sent out. And it's always been hard to me to figure why no one jumped on a book about Shakespeare written by a college basketball coach. That's a hard one. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was tough. Mm-hmm. I have to say our, our high school football coach, uh, not that I played high school football, but at the high school where I went to, uh, was a guy named Mr. Bill. Um, he was this big jacked guy. I mean, the guy he was like scary. He was scary. Like he had this big beard, scary guy. But he was also the English teacher um, and he had such a thing for Shakespeare. It was like so cool to see this like completely different side of him. I mean, there was your angry Mr. Bill with the whistle and the clipboard and they're very tight shorts. I don't know why he decided to wear those shorts, but they were very, very tight. <laughs> they were a thing. They, they were a thing. And, you know, I, I knew that he was circumcised. Don't ask me how. Um, but uh, I'm kidding about that. Thanks for um, you can't make these jokes when you, when you went to a Catholic school. But um but he, he had a thing for Shakespeare and he turned us all on to Shakespeare, you know, and I'm, I'm no Shakespearean scholar, but just his, his enthusiasm for, for Billy Shakespeare was, uh, was kind of contagious. And I remember he taught us, um, I mean, a number of them, but I remember Othello um, very well. And uh, that one, like, I remember writing a paper for him and uh, I have a twin brother named Jimmy and um, Jimmy was like the English guy. I was the math guy. Um, that's how my parents sort of typecasted us. Um, and I, and Jim always did well in English. Um, but I wrote a paper on Othello, um, well on Iago and, um, best villain in Shakespeare. Oh my God. It was so great. And just like how his evil spreads like a seed and how he plants seeds. I still remember this paper from, this was 1988, maybe 89. Um, and I remember he, uh, he didn't hand my paper back right away. Everyone else got theirs and he held it up like to, to, basically say how good it was and i was no like english scholar but i just had this creative idea for it um and uh, i remember my, my brother was pissed because he was uh you know he was used to getting the uh the praise for those things and um there we go mr i never but i never forgot mr bill o'connell um that's a good place to start you know it's it's funny that you have to have someone like that that actually inspires you a little bit like every high school kid starts out reading Julius Caesar and it's no wonder that nobody likes it. Like if everybody started out watching 12th night, more people would like Shakespeare and enjoy it. Yeah. But starting out with Julius Caesar, that's not, that's not the way it should go. That's a tough one, but you're right. I mean, in terms of encouragement for writers, and this is a theme that, that has come up in so many of these interviews. um, It's having somebody in your life who encouraged you at one point in time to do it. Um, that's like one of the golden nuggets that I have from, from, you know, New York times bestselling authors to, you know, people who are just starting out. It's, Hey, I had this third grade teacher who saw something in me and encouraged me to, to kind of do something. And that's, you know, we all, I mean, we all need more encouragement in this world, but, um, certainly one of the themes I've heard. Um, all right. Point number four, here we go. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring author? So somebody who, you know, kind of wants to do what you've done kind of two times over now. What would you tell an aspiring author? Um, I, uh, I don't know that I'd be so presumptuous as to give advice at this point, unless asked, uh, I'd be much more inclined to give it to a middle school or high school basketball player. <laughs> but um, I definitely would tell them to be ready to work. Um, I was joking with, well, I wasn't joking. I was being scolded by my wife the other day 
about, you know, what's next for this book? Like, how do I get it out? You know, the, these companies, these publicists, they want all this money to do all these things. And, you know, every once in a while you hear a story about someone that, you know, the, I think it was the book Once a Runner, the guy used to go to cross country meets, track meets and sell the book out of the trunk of his car. You know, the, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but Jonathan Livingston Siegel, I think the guy got rejected 42 times and then ended up selling, you know, whatever, a million copies. And I think like, if you're not ready to work, like to promote yourself and the book and the get ready for your friends and family to be the only ones who read it. Right. Um, Cause that's the hard part for me is like, I love coaching basketball. I love parenting my children. I would not be in love with throwing the books in the trunk of my car and going to the Lebanon Shakespeare festival. Yeah. You know, the other thing I'll add, um, I'll, I'll give you a build on to the advice you could give, because there was a couple of things you, you just said in, in, in our conversation that, that, you know, I take away as interesting points. Number one, now to do research, you track down, you know, a professor at, it was University of Hartford, right? Yep. Um, to pick his brain um, and just to, to kind of run stuff by. Um, not, not saying that you're focus grouping the idea, but you're getting input as you go, as you kind of go along. Um, and, and, and that's a great way to bring authenticity to, um, to any piece of work. Um, but the other thing that, you know, you mentioned is taking that trip, you know, to, uh, to England, um, to do a little research and experience things firsthand. Um, I'd say that's another piece of advice you could offer. Now I'm answering my own questions for you, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm just, I, it just kind of strikes me. Also, that's not a bad tax deduction because you can write that off as research. Um, so just something to keep in mind. Yes, uh, very important. <laughs> Too long ago. Moving on. Um, is there anything you're capable of doing now that you weren't able to do before you wrote this book? Uh, I don't think so. I think there's a lot less I can do now than when I wrote this book. Um, that's how it feels advancing in, in age. Um, <laughs> even reading is getting harder. You know, I got to switch classes and figure out where the contacts are. And um, so that's kind of a hard question. I, uh, I'm going to have to lay down on that one. All right. Something that's all right. I can do now that I couldn't do when I started the book. Maybe uh, a media tour, podcasts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that people tell me is that like doing stuff like this, the promotion of of the work is sometimes harder or oftentimes harder than actually the writing of it. Um, you know, what's your experience on the advertising and marketing side, just trying to get word of your book out there, you know, kind of beyond friends and family. I'll go back one. Now that you reframed it, I think I could probably teach Hamlet anywhere. All right. That's one of the things that, and I'd read it a couple of times before doing this, but it, it, I mean, not that it isn't, you know, I think everybody is like, a Hamlet person or a Falstaff person that really likes Shakespeare and I'm a Hamlet person. Um, so sorry to just backtrack for a second, the marketing and advertising, like what has it been like? Yeah. I mean, what did you learn about like that part of this? Like, it's almost like the business side of writing and publishing. That's what yeah. people tell me they, they struggle with the most, um, you know, versus the writing side of it. Yeah. I learned that I don't know enough about it. And honestly, uh, you know, it seems like I might have to hit you up with some emails for some suggestions about what the best ways are to go about it. Certainly, 
I'm thankful for this opportunity. Um, but it's hard because like, if you can't, if you don't have someone that's immediately interested, if you haven't been asked to write a book because you were X, um, most of what they do is you, you really can't find it. I'd take anyone who was like, Hey, I'll market your book. I'll get the publicity out. And we split everything 50, 50, 60, 40. Um, I take everybody goes, we, we will do a six week publicity campaign. It'll run you $8,000 and get, Who's motivated to do publicity once you already have the check in your pocket? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you. It's the I, most I backwards made... thing, I, you know, and I'm sure people do it all the time with a lot of great hope, but it's it's hard for me to take that leap of faith um, for sure. Oh, no, I mean, the, you're talking to somebody who who did one of those deals and um, it didn't work out in my favor. <laughs> so I would caution against such a thing. Um you know, telling you mentioned being, you know, Hamlet being a Hamlet guy. When I was in high school, my senior year, English class. Um, it's amazing I didn't get why I studied psychology in college. I have no idea. I should have gone into film or or something else. But instead of doing a final paper on Hamlet um, for Mr. Tom Chris, who uh, was a great English teacher, um, I wrote a movie called Hamlet and Horatio's Bogus Journey. And I mean, obviously inspired by by Bill and Ted's bogus journey, but I also put in an element of quantum leap in there because, because Hamlet and Horatio leave, leave, you know, their time and then they yeah. go into modern times, <laughs> wind up in like. I'm laughing even thinking about it, but um, yeah, so if I can if I can find a copy of that somewhere, I know I've got a box of VH, VHS tapes. If you find a copy of that somewhere, I will send it to you just for a critique to see if I had a, a modern adaptation of Hamlet, right? The, uh, well, it's an interesting take. I'm sure you remember from class that that actually happens. Like at one point he's 18 and then he comes back and he's 30. And so you're not, you're not too far right. off. Right. Well, there, mean, was, there was some basis of, of you know, we, we tied it into the story somehow. Um, Maybe. we also, we also got a good dick joke in there that, that went, under, went under the radar. <laughs> oh boy. Enough about that. Um, my co-star of that movie was a guy named Brent Bodick, who, uh, was also an SAE, but he, he went to, um, God, where did he go? University of Rhode Island. So he was, uh, he was, you know, same, same fraternity as those other guys we were talking about earlier, but a uh, different school. Um, but uh, question number, I've lost, lost count here. Let's call it number seven. Um, what, uh, you know, if you could whisper any words of advice to your younger self, I call this the, the Brad Paisley letter to me question, right? So letter to me is the song where he writes the letter to his, his younger self, um, kind of reassuring him about stuff that's how his life is going to turn out. What, um, if you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you, uh, what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Uh, it would, it would be a three word letter. And it would say, go to class. <laughs> make, it down it. To, make it down to Vonder Maiden at eight o'clock in the morning on Monday. Yep. I thought because I had the book in my hands and the teachers gave the questions, I could write the essay just from the book without attending um, when I chose not to. And I soon learned that all the answers were given away in class. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. that they're actually up there talking about what they'd like to hear in return. Um, and so my first, I mean, two and a half semesters, at least of college were like a throwaway. Um, I was fortunate enough to get a couple of really good professors 
in the English department um, my junior and senior year, or I should say my senior year and my second senior year, um, who, made it a, who made it a lot more fun. Um, and that was, you know, I think the problem for me is that I was like 22 when I was finally figuring out how to be 18 right. um, and somewhat responsible. So that would definitely be the first thing I, I said to me. Yeah. Did you, were you fortunate enough to ever take anything with um, either Sam Pickering or Wally Lamb when you were at UConn? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I never took anything with Pickering because he was all 8 a.m. classes, but Wally Lamb was my high school creative writing teacher. Uh, no kidding. Yeah. So when you were talking about someone that inspires you early on, um, you know, it, it was just a little nudge. He was actually, he was still teaching at North Tree Academy when I was also teaching there but he was a teacher when I was a student. Um, so I got a good dose of Wally early on. And it's funny, one of the things he said to me uh, after Oprah picked up, she's come undone. I said, you know, what are you working on? And he said, I'm too busy being an author to be a writer. And he kind of laughed because he's going around doing all these. And I think about it all the time now, because man, I give anything to have that problem right now. Right, right, this that's a, a great one. Book. That's a great quote. I mean, I had a lot of courses um, in Arjona, uh, just given its proximity to the uh, the psych building. So I, I was psych major. A lot of my upper division courses were there. Um, and I used to stand, I remember standing outside his office and seeing the name Wally Lamb. And then of course, years later, when she's come and done is like a huge hit. I'm like, yeah. oh my goodness, that I was like outside that guy's office all the time. Um, yeah. The I did, um, my favorite professor there was Gina Brecca who was incredible. I mean, she would like go from an English accent to a Rocky Balboa impersonation in the course of one sentence and three hyphens. And she, uh, I, I think uh, my wife's never read it, but um, Professor Barreca wrote my wife's favorite book entitled Perfect Husbands and Other Fairy Tales. Right. And uh, <laughs> I'm sure that my wife would love it and, and consider it her favorite. That's a great title. That's a great title. Pickering, um, for, for those in the audience who don't know, the character in, um, uh, what was the Robin Williams movie? Um, Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society that, that Robin Williams played was based on uh, Sam Pickering. Uh, or at least parts of his persona were based on Sam Pickering. And he actually spoke at, the only time I ever met the man was, it was I, I was fortunate enough to get into Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, and he spoke at that induction ceremony. Um, and I was thinking to myself, like, it's my senior year. It's like spring of my senior year. And I'm like, why didn't why, like, I did everything all wrong. <laughs> like I did everything all wrong. I mean, I, I went to class, but, um, you know, still it's like, I, I could have done things differently. All right. Last question in the hot seat. Um, easy one. Uh, what's the best movie about a plane crashing into the Hudson river? Whew. That's, that is pretty challenging. Um, it's a lot like the high school wrestling movie. Yeah, and the arm wrestling movie. I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to go with Sully. Okay, there you go. And that's, hey, that's it right there. The powerful play goes on, <laughs> and that's my verse. There you go. That's who you named after me. There you go. I mean, it really you know. wasn't that hard. People make a big deal about it. <laughs> it you know, like as long as you don't open the rear doors, you're good. Yeah. And you know? T-Girl was way too far away. Too far. We're, yeah. go we're going on the Hudson. Uh, well, this has been fun. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people thinking to themselves, hey, where can I get this book, Tilting with Lips, by this author, William Sully Sullivan? Uh, so where can people go to pick it up? You can uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Um, I think you can 
save a couple nickels on Archway Publishing. On their website, they have links to all the books and just Archway Publishing, Tilting with Lips. And uh, those are the easy spots to grab it. Very good. Any, uh, any social media handles you want to call out if people want to reach out to you on socials? Um, I mean, anybody can reach me at 220-221. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. All right. Well, Sully, this is good. I was, uh, was very happy that we connected and I wish you all the best with this book. Likewise. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Yep.